this morning, I, I want you to take your Bible. I hope you have your, your Bible with you this morning and t- turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. One of the things that I guess we all sort of fear in a Christian college environment is that uh, we get a little bit heady about our experience and it becomes an academic exercise. We go to Bible class and we take our notes from the professor and we sit in chapel and we hear this plethora of speakers that are paraded in front of us and we tend to become a bit analytical about that. And we get in our dorms and we sit in our in our little uh, discussion groups and we dialogue about theological issues and biblical interpretation and all of that is sort of a, a head game. It's all sort of up in the mind and and maybe never it does get down in the heart. One of the things we do at um, the Master Seminary uh, to help sort of overcome the academic influence, which can be the singular influence, very often is in many seminaries, is we have discipleship labs every semester at the Master Seminary. Every faculty member has a group of five or six men, and a number of us at the church have them as well. And our five or six are for us to disciple. They meet several hours, several times a week for prayer and personal mentoring and spiritual things because we want to produce a man of God. We don't want their head just filled with Greek and Hebrew and church history and... and um, historical theology and and whatever else, we want them also to know God, to pursue the knowledge of God. One of the courses we have at the seminary started out as an elective. It's a course on prayer taught by Dr. Jim Roscup. He's quite an amazing guy. He's got uh, several earned doctorates, one from Dallas Seminary, another one from um, up in Edinburgh in Scotland under I. Howard Marshall, a prominent New Testament scholar. is a very academic guy, but he has a passion for spiritual issues and he has a passion for God. My favorite story about Dr. Roscup, well, there's a lot of favorite stories. He writes cowboy novels under an assumed name. And uh, if you see any cowboy stories named under the, the author Jim Ross, it's him. What's funny about it is a mild, quiet, uh, very devout, very godly person but all these novels, the hero is blown away about 15 people by page 30, you know. So down inside, you know, he's, you know, he's, he packs a wallop. But anyway, I have a favorite story about Dr. Roscup. Dr. Roscup called a student and, and uh, a student called him and said, I can't get my term paper in. I had to write a term paper on time. And Dr. Roscup has a, a rule that you have to have your term paper in on time. No excuses. That wouldn't be fair to the others who met the deadline. And this guy called him one night and said, uh, I can't get the paper done. I finished all the work. My wife promised to type it, but she's pregnant and she's very sick and she just can't type it. Can I have another couple days? And Dr. Roscup says, well, that really wouldn't be fair to all the other students uh, to, to do that because everybody has their own uh, contingencies in life. And uh, so I, we really do have to have that paper tomorrow. And he said, well, I, I don't think I'll be able to do that. And uh, Dr. Roscup said, well, what, where do you live? And he told him. And, and um, within about 40 minutes, there was a knock on his door and there was Dr. Roscup. And he stayed up all night and typed his paper. That's the kind of man he is. Well, he started to teach a class, um, take his classes when you get to seminary, guys. Um, he started a class in prayer, and I said to him one day, I said, now you're starting a class in prayer, Dr. Roscup, uh, how did you get ready for that? I'll never forget his answer. He said, well, John, he said, uh, I, I just read every book um, in English on prayer. I said, you read every book? Well, he said, yes, uh, because I, I really wanted to be sure I hadn't overlooked anything. And uh, I asked him which three were the best that he read, and he told me. 
I said, well, what's the assignment in your class on prayer? He said, well, we have a very simple assignment. One hour of private intercession every day. And I said, what's, what's the response? He said, oh, the response is these, these young men are getting to know God. This started out as an elective and the students demanded it be a requirement. So now everybody takes this course on prayer. It's all about getting to know God. It's all about drawing near to Him. And you know, that really is the essence of our salvation, isn't it? It's amazing how we can focus on so many other things and lose touch with the real heart of what it is to be a Christian, and that is to have a relationship, right? With the living God. At the moment of our salvation... I think the elements of that relationship are fairly clear to us, but it's not too uncommon for us to lose touch with them. Let's look at James chapter 4 and see what makes a relationship with God. What are the components there? They start out at the point of salvation and they carry on from there. James 4, beginning in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. On the basis of the fact that God gives this kind of grace, you have ten commands in verses 7 to 10. Ten commands. These are the ten commandments of James here. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord... And he will exalt you. Now, at the very outset, I need to kind of give you the primary context of this passage, and it is this. It is an invitation to salvation. Okay? It is an invitation given to an unbeliever. He has characterized unbelievers throughout this epistle. He's characterized them, frankly, a number of ways. For example... Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he characterizes an unbeliever as one who is characterized by doubt and is driven and tossed by the wind. Later on in chapter 1, he characterizes an unbeliever as one who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, and so he is self-deluded. He characterizes an unbeliever later on in chapter 2 as someone who says he has faith, but his faith produces no works. Remember that? And he says if you have faith only and no works, that is a dead faith. That is to say it is a non-saving faith. Then he characterizes unbelievers as those who have a wisdom that is earthly. In chapter 3, verse 15, it is earthly, natural, demonic. It is characterized by jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil thing, in contrast to the heavenly wisdom. And then he characterizes the unbeliever as one who is driven, chapter 4, verse 2, by lust. Verse 4, he is one who is a friend of the world, and to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. So all through here, he has been demonstrating the difference between a believer and a non-believer. A true believer 
doesn't doubt. He has a strong faith. A true believer is a doer of the word, not just a hearer. A true believer is one whose faith produces works. A true believer has wisdom from above that is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits. Doesn't waver and is without hypocrisy. And he has a righteous life that produces righteousness. A true believer is not driven by lust. And a true believer is not a friend of the world. He is a friend of God and that makes him at odds with the world. Now, having set those contrasts in place, he now comes in chapter 4, verse 6, to an invitation. And he is now going to invite the unbeliever to become a, a believer. He is calling for salvation. It is really not unlike many invitations in the Bible. There are many of them. Deuteronomy, for example, chapter 30. You remember this invitation? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days. There's an invitation. Choose life. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, another classic Old Testament invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Matthew chapter 7, you have the first great New Testament invitation. It goes like this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many there are who go in it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Then you have another invitation in the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am contrite or gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is light then you have the invitation of jesus it sounds like this if any man wishes to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it or what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul Then you have the invitation of Acts chapter 16. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And the invitation of Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And the the Revelation 22 verse 17 invitation. Come, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Many invitations. The Bible is filled with them. They're calling people to God, to Christ, to forgiveness, to redemption, and to salvation. None of them, in my mind, is as comprehensive and as powerful as the one that I just read you. It is, in my judgment, the greatest invitation on the pages of Scripture. Unfortunately, it gets overlooked as an invitation because many people assume that it is directed at Christians, but it is not. It does define our relationship to God, and we'll show you why, but it is primarily a call to the unconverted to come to Christ. And the call is based on the promise of verse 6, that God gives great grace. Grace to overcome depravity. Grace to overcome sins. Grace to overcome the flesh. Grace to overcome Satan and demons. Grace to overcome death. 
He's saying, I will give you saving grace. And God is opposed to the proud, those who think they're fine the way they are, but He gives grace to those who humble themselves. This is a call for salvation. And of course, we hear that ringing call again at the end of James, the last verse, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. James has as a theme calling sinners back from their sin. So these words then are directed to those who are not saved, those who are captive to earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom, those who are loving the world, those who are God's enemies, those whose inner spirit still lusts, those who are proud, those who are self-sufficient, those who don't need God and they don't need Christ. And he says, I'll give you grace if you will hear and respond to this invitation. Now what then lets us know that this is directed at unbelievers? Two words. Go down to verse 8. The first word is sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. The second, you double-minded. The term sinner is never used in the scripture to describe a believer. I'm not going to take the time this morning to haul you through about 30 verses of scripture, but suffice it to say, and you can look the word sinner up yourself in a concordance and trace it through scripture, it is never used to refer to a believer. It always refers to an unbeliever. In Genesis 13, it appears the first time to describe the men of Sodom who were homosexuals. It is used in Proverbs to refer to those who are wicked as opposed to the righteous. Sinners are said in contrast to the righteous. All through the New Testament, the word sinner is associated with the unregenerate. The Apostle Paul said Jesus Christ came into the world to save what? Sinners of whom I am chief. Again, Paul uses the word in Romans 5.8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word sinner is never used to describe the regenerate, the redeemed. Secondly, the word double-minded really is a description of unbelievers as well. Jesus put it this way, He that is not with me is what? Against me. You cannot serve God and mammon. There is a narrow way and a broad way. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John made it very clear. The true believer loves his brother, walks according to how Jesus walked, is not characterized by a continual pattern of sin. The unbeliever is the opposite. You can't have both. The double-minded is the person trying to do the impossible with one foot in both worlds. And if he is a friend of the world, says verse 4, he is the enemy of God. So here is an invitation then directed at God's enemies, those who are sinners, and telling them that there is grace available for all their sins, and there is a full relationship with the living God for those who will come. And then he gives them ten commands... Ten commands that are the response elements of true faith, okay? This is what true faith looks like. Then it also describes for us the ongoing nature of the relationship. Because whatever is true about your faith at the moment of salvation will always be true about your faith, right? 
If you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ initially, you continue to believe in Him. You have a persevering faith. So whatever is the nature of saving faith at the moment of salvation is the nature of saving faith all the way to the end. So however you define what was going on in my heart and mind at the moment of my salvation is how you define the ongoing relationship that I have with the Lord. Even though it flourishes and is enriched and expands, it's still based on the same elements. Let's look at them then. I don't know if we can get through all of them. If we don't finish this morning, we'll hit them next Wednesday. The necessary elements of a genuine faith. Or, to put it in another context, the the necessary components in knowing God. In going beyond head knowledge and really knowing God. Coming to know Him and sustaining that relationship. This defines not only the faith that saves, this defines the nature of ongoing faith and our continuing relationship with the Lord. First command. Verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. It's as if James says, look, do you want to receive saving grace? Do you want to be redeemed from your sins? Do you want to know God? Then, number one, submit, therefore, to God. From the Greek verb, hupotasso, literally means to get in line, to align yourself under the authority. It's a military word, speaking of troops that got in line in front of the commander. That word is used a number of times in the Bible in a human way, in a human sense. And just a few simple illustrations can give you the sense of the word. Luke 2.51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And there it's referring to Jesus as a boy subjecting himself to parental authority. So it's not only used in a military sense, but even in a parental sense. The word is used in a divine way, in the divine realm, back in Hebrews 13, where it tells us basically that the one who believes is to be lined up properly under the truth of God. So spiritually it lines us up under God's authority in His Word, and that's its meaning here. So when you come to the Lord at the moment of salvation, there is a humbling of oneself that begins with a willing, conscious submission to God's sovereign authority. This takes us back to this whole issue of Lordship salvation. I won't, I won't say much about that this morning specifically. Uh, just finished a new book. It, it'll be mailed February 3rd on the Gospel according to the Apostles. Title of it, Faith Works, subtitle The Gospel According to the Apostles, which deals with this issue of Lordship Salvation. Uh, by the way, that is going through so many changes now, you can hardly keep up with the people who deny Lordship Salvation. It's even reached proportions now where people are saying, not only does, not Jesus, does Jesus not need to be Lord in your life, but you can become saved even if you don't believe in Jesus. And the term I heard to describe this, I was mentioning in my class this morning, is called simultaneous dispensationalism. Simultaneous dispensationalism says some of us are under new covenant conditions because we know the gospel. A whole huge portion of the world is under old covenant dispensational conditions because they have never heard the gospel. So God will accept them on whether they believe what they know, which doesn't include the gospel. God will hold us responsible for what we believe, which includes the gospel. Therefore, we are saved by how we respond to the gospel. They are saved by how they respond to what they know if it doesn't include the gospel so they can be saved without even knowing Christ, let alone confessing him as Lord. 
That's, that's, that seems to be where this open door of denying the lordship of Christ goes. And the question was asked to one advocate of that. What about a Muslim? If a Muslim seeks after God, doesn't know God's name is Jehovah, thinks his name is Allah, will he be saved? And the answer was given, if he is seeking after God under any name, that's sufficient if his heart is true in seeking God. Of course, that flies in the face of Acts 4.12, which says, Neither is there salvation in any other name except the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is always the effort to say people can be saved without acknowledging Jesus as Lord, and I don't believe that's true. Here you have a submission uh, demanded at the very outset, the first of the Ten Commandments, submit yourself to God. That's where it all starts. Line up under your sovereign. Line up under the authority. Humbling yourself before God begins with a willing, conscious submission to His sovereign authority. The idea here is not a passive giving in to a greater force. It's not some reluctant kind of knuckling under, but a willingness to enlist as a soldier, as it were, under this commander because of how highly I honor and esteem this commander. Allegiance to God means following Him. And what's God's first command? The first command He gives in the new covenant condition is this. This is my beloved Son. What? Hear Him. So if I submit to God, then I submit to the Son to whom I am called to listen. Allegiance to God then implies following His Son, a readiness to take His commands, to do His will from the heart, no matter what. And that's why you take up your cross and you're willing to die if need be. A loyal soldier. The act of taking one's proper place under God, under God's sovereign authority delegated to Jesus Christ, to whom that authority has been delegated, as the New Testament makes clear. So the Christian life starts as a surrender. It's at the point where you say, I'm no longer in charge, you are. That's step one. A new Lord and a new master. Notice command number two. Command number two says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's no middle ground. You say yes to God and you say no to Satan. That's what happens at the time of salvation. Becoming the friend of God means you transition from being the friend of the world. Becoming the child of God means you transition from being the child of the devil. Coming into the kingdom of God's dear son means you come out of the kingdom of darkness. Having once been under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, you are now under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you were the slaves of sin, you are now the servants of righteousness. So James is saying, if you want to come to Christ, then set your stand against the devil. By the way, that's a very interesting word. It comes from two Greek terms. It's antihistamine, from which we get the word antihistamine. You know what an antihistamine is? It's a pill you take to fight against, what, cold or some kind of nasal problem. It means this is to take your stand, to put up a battle against some attack. And that's where the word comes from. It comes from the Greek term, which means to resist. An antihistamine is a pill you take to resist whatever's causing your problems. And this term used here is to set up a permanent battle position against Satan. 
When you come to Christ, you take your stand. You say, I will follow God. He is my master. He is my king. I take a permanent position against Satan. The term devil, diabolos, slanderer, accuser, is the title for the chief enemy of God, the chief power of evil, God's personal antagonist, and the enemy of your souls. So you are transferring your allegiance totally, totally, submitting to the lordship of Christ. And when you do that, isn't it interesting what Satan does? He says, take your settled position against the devil and he's going to do what? He's going to run. He's no competition for your new king. He's no competition for your new authority. He is vanquished. He is a toothless lion. He goes about seeking whom he may devour, roaring all over the place. He has no power to devour those who belong to Christ. So the first two commands then simply call us to submit to the sovereign Lord God and take the position against Satan, formidably establishing our allegiance. We can say then, based on those two things, that the first attitudinal component in a saving faith is submission to sovereign lordship. Submission to sovereign lordship. When you came to Christ, you said, I acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I don't think you necessarily understand the full implications of that, but that's the heart attitude which the Holy Spirit produces. Let's look at the third command. The third command is in verse 8. This too, really at the heart of all of this text. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Those are very Jewish concepts, talking about approaching God. Draw near was originally a priestly term. You find it back in Exodus 19, Leviticus 10, Ezekiel 43 and 44. It referred to the priest who who entered ceremonial into the, ceremonially into the presence of God, and he came, you know, to make sacrifice and atonement under the regulations of the Old Covenant. The word eventually came to mean anybody who came to God, anybody who approached God. You have clear back, even in the Mosaic economy, Abraham, who drew near to God in prayer. Psalm 73:28 says, It is good to draw near to God. What does that mean? Simply, it means to pursue an intimate relationship with God. It means to, love, to want to love Him, to want to be with Him, to want to enjoy His fellowship, and to be a worshiper. In John chapter 4, you remember Jesus and the woman at the well. He said to her, the Father seeks true worshipers. He wants people who want to adore Him. He wants people who want to honor Him and praise Him and exalt Him. And as we've done this morning in song, and I hope in heart as well. He's calling people who will give Him praise. So the one who humbles himself to receive saving grace, turns his back on the pride that keeps God away, will have a consuming desire to know and commune with God. This is another attitude, a desire for God, a hunger for God, a a desire to know Him, to have fellowship with Him. That's part of it, to love Him. Back in Acts 17, verse 27, Paul said, speaking of the nations, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him though he is not far from each one of us. You know, there is a sense in which man has this vacuum, right? Uh, uh, That is a God-shaped vacuum. And there's a missing thing in his life, and it's huge, and it's compelling. And men seek to fill that thing. 
and they never find what really fills it until they turn toward God. And then once they focus on God, there is a natural, or I should say a supernatural, longing to know Him. To have Him fill that void. To bring the peace, the joy, the purpose, the security, the hope that every heart cries out for. So, a person who comes to salvation then, comes because, first of all, he wants a new master and a new king. And secondly, because he wants a new relationship. He needs somebody to lead his life. He wants somebody to follow, and it isn't the devil. He wants a new master and a new lord to be his sovereign. Not just one he can obey, but one that he can love and adore. So, Christianity then boils down to... Loving and, and putting alongside that love, obeying. And then the promise of verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see that illustrated in the prodigal son. The son comes running and you have the illustration of wanting to draw near to God. The son comes, I'm going to go home. I'm going to try to reestablish a relationship with my father. He's illustrative of the sinner. The father's like God. And the, the father sees the son coming and he runs as fast as he can to wrap his arms around him and hug him and kiss him. And that's God's attitude. The fourth component, the fourth element here in knowing God, coming to know God, is in verse 8 as well. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is another issue here. And the origin of the thought is also very much tied to the Old Testament Jewish ceremonies. There was always a ceremonial cleansing of the hands, the practice of the priest who went before God to make any kind of sacrifice, particularly the high priest on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16. And those acts symbolized the washing of the heart. They symbolized cleansing of the heart and the outer part of life. I mean, when you washed your hands, you were symbolizing the fact that you wanted a clean life and clean action, clean behavior, clean deeds. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you that He will not hear. So if you're going to get into His presence, you've got to wash So in approaching God, the sinner must desire to be cleansed of sin. How does that happen? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive. When the heart cries out for cleansing, God will deliver that cleansing. That's his promise. Now, couple with that, the fifth command. The fifth command, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That looks to the inside. We're talking to double-minded sinners People who are not redeemed. And he's saying to them, the outside has to be washed and the inside as well. The hands symbolize action. The heart symbolizes thought, desire, motive, intent, purpose. The psalmist cries out repeatedly for a clean heart. And he also mentions clean hands. Approaching God then involves true and earnest longings and endeavors after purity, beauty of spirit, purity of life. And we can sum up those first five in three simple ways. Coming to salvation means submission to sovereign lordship. It means commitment to loving worship. And it means a hunger for holiness. Those are the components. That's how the sinner comes, and let me add immediately, and that's how the relationship is sustained. Right now, I continue 
to have a desire in my heart to submit to the sovereign Lord. I continue to have a desire in my heart to express loving worship. I continue to hunger for holiness. That's the ongoing life of a believer that keeps the relationship with God all that it ought to be. Then let's look at a sixth command here. We'll wrap these up somewhat quickly. Sixthly, very interesting in verse um, 9. Be miserable. Be miserable. It means to feel rotten. To feel wretched. You say, what's that talking about? One word, shame. Shame. Shame over what? Sin. This is the feeling that follows the true estimate of someone's condition. You have to feel shame. You can't come to Christ without the shame of sin, because it's the shame of sin that makes you desperate for salvation. This speaks of a deep sense of one's sinfulness and the shame and the guilt of it that leads to a spirit of penitence. A spirit of penitence. A lot of people don't come to salvation because they're not miserable enough. They're happy with themselves. They're not overwrought with their sin. They're not burdened by their guilt. This is a call really for the frivolous worldly people to grieve over their sin. To see it for what it is and how it offends God. Number seven command, one word. Mourn. Mourn. That's the proper response to your miserable condition. This is a sort of a self, self-contained, non-violent grief that makes the heart ache. James has in mind the demeanor of misery, sadness over sin, a, a, a lament, like a lament over someone that's dead. And then eighthly, the eighth command is to weep. Be miserable because you're ashamed about your condition. Mourn over the misery of that condition, even to the degree that you shed tears. That's the external result of misery and mourning. Inner sorrow hits the outside. Here is the the effect of repentance on the emotions. Be miserable. Repentance is in the mind at that point. I look at my condition and I'm ashamed of it. Mourning is internal grief over that as I assess my condition and weeping is my emotional response, the outburst of sorrow in my heart that expresses itself outwardly when I realize my condition. It's like Peter who began to weep bitterly on the outside when he came to grips with the shame of the sin on the inside. Tears are often the outward evidence of inward brokenness. So what do you have here? You have in these three commands, genuine repentance. What are the components of salvation then? Submission to sovereign lordship, commitment to loving worship, hunger for holiness, and genuine repentance. Suffering the shame and the pain of sinfulness. Two left. Number nine. In verse ten. Humble... I'm sorry, in verse, uh, the end of verse 9, first end in verse 10. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy literally into gloom or heaviness. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, it basically means to see things the way God sees them. To become serious. He looks at the leisurely, trivial laughter of gods and men indulging in their pleasures the laughter of a fool who doesn't understand how serious issues are, who doesn't understand his eternal destiny, who doesn't understand he's headed for hell, who doesn't understand the coming judgment of God, who has no clue about death and hell, and he just goes along merrily in his life. And here James says to him, you better take another look and you better let your laughter be turned into sorrow You better let your laughter be turned literally into mourning and your joy to heaviness, gloominess. I mean, you better deal with reality. What's he talking about here? Separation from the folly of the world. Separation from the folly of the world. Very important point. Salvation involves then submission to sovereign lordship, commitment to loving worship, It demands a hunger for holiness. It demands genuine repentance and a separation from the folly of the world. You can't live life like the world does. You can't merrily go through life laughing your way along. You've got to have the mind of God. You need to see the world the way the Lord sees the world. You need to realize the impending disaster to which you are inevitably headed. The hell that yawns awaiting to swallow you. And then James sums up everything with the last command. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. This is, this is an essential component, self-rejection. Self-rejection. You say to yourself, he is so great, he is so holy, he is so mighty, he is so majestic, I am so sinful, I am humbled before him. And this is where you reach out in Receiving the gift that he gives. All you see is your sin and you reach out and plead for his grace and he in response picks you up. That's salvation. That's salvation. Incredible components. So often misunderstood. When you come to Christ, there is a conscious submission to sovereign lordship. There is a commitment to worship. There is a hunger for holiness. There is genuine repentance. There is a commitment to be separated from the world and to see things the way God doesn't get serious about destiny, serious about time and eternity. And there is a necessary recognition that you can do nothing about your condition. You stand there in total self-rejection and you reach out for the grace of God in Christ. That's how you came. And may I just sum up by saying, and that's how you live. Because whatever the nature of your faith at the moment of your salvation, it is the same now. God gave you faith to believe, and the nature of that faith was defined in terms of what it was like at the beginning, and the definition hasn't changed. So what about a Christian life? What are the necessary components if I want to draw near to God? What are the necessary components if I want to be a godly man or a godly woman? What are the necessary components if I want to live in the maximum relationship with God? They are these. I must continually submit to His sovereign leadership in my life. I must be constantly committed to loving expressions of worship toward Him. 
I must have an ongoing and cultivated and expanding hunger for holiness. I must be continually broken over my sinfulness. I must desire all along the line to make sure that I don't view time and eternity like the foolish world does. And so I separate myself from them attitudinally. And I must ever and always be rejecting myself and reaching out for God's grace, which is sufficient to meet my every need. That's how you maintain a relationship. That's absolutely essential to get you beyond just filling your head. These things will be true in your life, but the degree to which they are true depends on your level of commitment. That submission to His Lordship ought to be expanding and growing in every area of life. That desire to love and worship ought to be growing and growing and flourishing and flourishing until it occupies your heart and mind almost all the time. That hunger for holiness should be expanding and expanding and defined in greater and greater terms as you live. That separation from the world, that self-rejection, all of that should characterize your life ever in an increasing way. Then we know the relationship is right. And I suppose that anybody who would be in an environment like this at a Christian college would fear that there are people here getting their heads full, but the relationship isn't growing. And I want to be very honest with you. That's up to you. There's really not much we can do. We can do our best to stimulate that, both in chapel and class, by personal relationships, personal counsel, Encouraging you to read, but ultimately it comes down to your own heart. George Whitfield wrote this, Every man by his own natural will hates God. But when he has turned to the Lord by repentance, then his will is changed. Then his conscience, now hardened and benumbed, shall be quickened and weakened. Then his hard heart shall be melted and his unruly affections shall be crucified. Thus, by that repentance, the whole soul will be changed. He will have new inclinations, new desires, and new habits. And now it's a matter of cultivating those. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, There's a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have groaned deeply because they see what grievous sinners they are. Always affirming the Lordship of Christ. Always committed to loving worship. Always hungering after holiness. Always broken over our sinfulness. Always separated from the world. Always reaching out for grace. And that's how you sustain the relationship with our God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for James' word to us this morning and for how it encourages us to follow the path. The path that leads past the courtyard through the holy place into the Holy of Holies, right up to the altar, up on the mercy seat, into your presence. Father, we pray that every one of us will know the fullness of intimacy with you and a real relationship. Help us to draw near and to know the fullness of joy, power that comes from those who truly dwell in your presence. 
bless our day and make it a wonderful and fulfilling day. We'll give you praise in our Savior's name. Amen.